Dear Father, thank you, Father, for the chance to to learn deep things about you and about your plan for us and for our opportunities to serve you. Father, I'm going to pray for our ears this morning, for our hearts and and our ears. I know that uh, going to school was probably something only a few of us really enjoyed, depending on what we did in life. Perhaps we enjoyed a class here and there, a teacher here and there, but usually our Our focus is always looking beyond the teaching, beyond the classroom, beyond a degree or a diploma, into what we'll do next. And that's to be expected, perhaps, Father, but we know that sometimes that gets in the way of learning. Sometimes we're too busy looking past what we need that we don't take it. So I ask, Father, that as we're sitting today, we're learning, we're giving our attention to the Word of God, and that we're not looking past the deep and meaningful things on the page today, that we're giving... A proper consideration, proper reflection on a plan that you you initiated before the foundations of the earth and that you have brought to pass in your good timing and all of it to our benefit. So, Father, we we owe you, if nothing else, our attention. And uh, we ask, Father, you give us a, a heart that will stay attending to the things of your word this morning, to appreciate the depths of them and to um, concern ourselves with them. We pray this knowing that we will, we will benefit, Father. We will be blessed by the attending to your word. Please teach it, Father, to each of us, including myself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, last week I departed a little bit from the normal pattern. We didn't do a purely verse-by-verse approach to chapter 3 last week. I started dissecting the chapter. I noted how the chapter was primarily a prayer, but I pulled it apart a little bit. Last week Paul prayed for the church to receive spiritual power from the Father, for the church to grow in the comprehending of God's love, Christ's love, to be rooted and grounded in that love, and all of that so that we could be content and filled up with the fullness of God, that we could understand things at a deeper level and glory in them. And that prayer was primarily a prayer focused on the unity of the church, on the union between the Jewish element within the body of Christ in that day and the newly arriving and growing Gentile component to the church. But like I said, Paul interrupts his prayer so that he can address another topic, a mystery, the mystery of the church. And I chose to cover the prayer in its entirety last week, skipping entirely over Paul's explanation of the ministry. So that means I need to go back now to that section in chapter 3. So to do that, we're going to go right back to the top of the chapter, to verse 1 again, where he initially makes the break. And then, unlike last week, we'll just keep reading. We'll just keep going down it the way we probably should have. So verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. I'm going to stop there. Paul doesn't stop, I should add. This is all one long sentence in typical Pauline form, but I have to stop because I don't have enough breath to actually read a sentence and stop. So let's start like we did last week with the beginning of verse 1. Let's start with asking when Paul says, for this reason. What reason is Paul speaking about in verse 1 again? If you remember, I said in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, Paul has painstakingly explained all the blessings that every believer possesses, even now while we await the kingdom. By faith, that is, we possess all these things. So even though you don't see them all yet, 
You've got them. They're no less yours. Therefore, in those chapters, Paul argued that the believer should be living in light of that truth. You shouldn't go around complaining about what you lack, or you shouldn't waste time chasing after the poor substitutes of those things that you can see here on earth. And you shouldn't perpetuate divisions within a body that God is united in one faith. Instead of all those things, we should be resting in the promises of God, looking forward to the things we have in eternity, and living as one group now, spiritually, even though in previous days, before faith, we would never have seen each other as brother and sister. This concept, this concept of unifying in a common faith for a common future, that's an important concept. And even though the things that might divide us today are not the same things that were dividing the church in the first century, that doesn't mean that the need for unity is any less for us than it was for them. So in Paul's day, the most common wedge, as I've already mentioned in here, was the wedge between a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer. That wedge had been created as a result of the law of God that God gave to Israel in their covenant, which required and effectively forced them to stand apart from the rest of the nations of the world. It formed the nation, after all. It created the Jewish nation from the start. But the law was so effective in that regard that once the law had been fulfilled or completed in Christ, and then the division, the need for division, had passed, that division persisted, at least in the minds of the people within the church, at least among some. And so Paul, now at this point in the letter, is specifically addressing the problems of this division. But in reality, he's already started on this. There are four different arguments Paul makes in the letter of Ephesians for why unity is now the order of the day instead of the division of Jew and Gentile. We studied one of those parts already, earlier, in chapter 2. And then in the second and third parts of the argument, we're studying them here in chapter 3. And then later we'll come to the fourth part in chapter 4. You remember back in chapter 2, when Paul acknowledged that Gentiles were once far off from the promises of God? God intended, back in the Old Testament times, for that division to exist. He intended for the Gentiles to be separate for a time. And then he says, but that time has passed. Today, in Christ Jesus, he said the two have been brought together into one. The dividing wall was torn down. You remember all this. Okay, that was his first argument. The second part of that argument is found here in chapter 3, and we covered that last week. That was the prayer. And in the prayer, Paul petitioned the Lord to grant the church an appreciation for his love. And remember, he described God's love in a broad set of terms. That God's love had the breadth, the height, the depth, etc. to encompass all people. It wasn't just a love for the Jewish people. It was a love for all people. And that meant that God had included the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. A group of people that the Jews had previously written off as just unlovable. That there was no hope for Gentiles. And similarly in that prayer, he also argued for the Gentiles to do the same. That the Gentiles should now understand that the love of God coming to them doesn't mean God is turning his back on Israel. The Lord hadn't forsaken his people. So, as he will say in Romans elsewhere, we can't be arrogant against the root. They support us. We don't support them. And then, in the fourth part, we'll deal with next week. So that leaves us with the third part. Have I confused everyone yet? Four arguments for why there's unity. The first one is chapter 2. The second and third are in this chapter. And the fourth one is coming. We've done the first of the two in this chapter. The prayer. Alright, that leaves us now with the mystery. The mystery is his third argument... For why we have unity. And at the end of verse 1, Paul says, For this reason, I was made a prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. And if you notice at that point, 
He takes a detour. This is where we paused last week and we jumped into verse 14 so we could keep going in the prayer. But we're not doing that now. Now we're taking the detour with him. And from this point, he detours into explaining why he was given responsibility to preach to Gentiles. And along the way, he's going to explain why God determined to join these two people together into one group we call the church. And why he moved from working with only one special nation, a nation he created, into a place of incorporating all kinds of people into a single body. And in typical form, as I said earlier, Paul just throws all this on us in one long sentence. It runs all the way to verse 13. So just like we did in chapter 1 with that long opening sentence in that chapter, we're going to break it apart. So in verse 2, Paul begins his detour by asking rhetorically if his audience had heard how Paul came to be a steward of God's plan of grace. Because he just said, I was a prisoner of Christ for you guys. And then he sort of says, oh, by the way, you remember this, right? You remember how I became a prisoner for this job? How I got this job? Referring back to the way that he was arrested on the road to Damascus by the Lord and became a believer. Paul's story of that moment of conversion is written about three times in the book of Acts alone. And he alludes to it elsewhere in his letters, which should tell you something. It should tell you how important Paul's conversion was, his personal testimony was, to his role in the church. It's not just a good story that Paul liked to talk about. It has true theological value. I'm going to remind you of it myself. Let's go to, if you want to turn there, I'm going to go to Acts chapter 9. I'm just going to read the account, a part of the account of Paul's conversion as it's first related to us in that book. The first of three times we hear of it. In Acts 9, 3. Luke is the author, as you may know, and Luke writes, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Now, I know and I, or I assume this account is familiar to most of us, but I want you to take note of a few key details once more. First, Paul is the enemy of the church. One of them, but certainly a prominent one. But remember, Paul did not view himself as an enemy of God. On the contrary, Paul viewed himself to be aligned with God against a group who, Paul thought, was perverting Judaism. Paul saw himself then doing the work of God by putting to death those who would call Jesus the Messiah. So you have this zealous, upright Jew 
There's no way he could imagine that the true Jewish Messiah would have been someone that could be killed by Roman Gentiles. That did not fit their expectations for a coming Messiah. So in their mind, they had the story right. Jesus couldn't be the guy, and therefore anyone who would proclaim him to be Messiah is blaspheming and worthy of death. And so he persecuted Christians in full conviction that he was on the side of God. From that point, God appears, Christ appears to Saul. I love the phrase, it's such a classic phrase. He says, who are you, Lord? It's like part of him knew, but another part didn't want to know. Anyway, who are you, Lord? And when Jesus appeared, he came, Paul came to see that everything that he thought he knew turned out to be wrong. Ironically, the Lord used blindness to give Paul that new insight. And most shocking of all for Paul, once he finally came to understand what was happening to him, he realized that the Lord had given him a mission of reaching the Gentiles as well as the sons of Israel. That part of the story is not given here. It's given in later parts of, of Acts and, and in particularly in Paul's own writing. But it must have been a bigger shock to him in some regard that he was called to minister to Gentiles than it ever was that Jesus was the Messiah. That was something completely unforeseen. I mean, it's not just that they had a bias against Gentiles. Don't, don't see the Jewish perspective here with too much prejudice. You have to understand where it started. Their own law, the word of God that they had, made no provision for Gentiles from their perspective. In fact, it said to Israel, set yourself apart from them. Interestingly, it also said that you would be a light to them. But those subtle references were lost in the bigger picture. The bigger picture was, God's for us, and he's not for them. And it's out of that theological perspective that they then developed a lifestyle of hatred against the Gentile, which is, by the way, a good example in the negative, I guess, of how theology drives behavior. And so that's where this comes from. This mission of Paul being sent to the last group on earth you'd expect is what he's referring to here when he says, in verse 2, that he was given the stewardship of God's grace. The word in Greek for stewardship, it just means to manage something on behalf of another. To manage something on behalf of another. So Paul says he was assigned responsibility to manage the delivery of God's grace to the Gentile people. What an awesome responsibility. For the first time in history, God is going to blow the doors open on Gentile access to him. And he puts all of that responsibility, initially anyway, on one guy. All the other apostles were principally devoted to the ministry of Jewish people. In fact, they all resisted the idea that they could open up doors to Gentiles. Peter among them, if you remember. In the book of Acts, God has to come to him in a special dream just to get him over the hump so that he'll actually go talk to one Gentile, Cornelius. But this is where Paul's mission was focused. He had the responsibility because the Lord had this desire that Gentiles would receive his mercy too. And as reasonable and probably as inevitable as that sounds for you and I today, it was not always that way. In fact, I think it required that people in Paul's day see the miracle of his conversion, the miracle conversion of this prominent Jew before they would ever have accepted from anyone the thought that there could have been a plan for the Gentiles. It's probably why the story of Paul's conversion is repeated so often in Scripture. It was God's way of demonstrating his determination to bring the gospel to all people. Because no one could stand back and say, well, don't believe Paul. He's always had a soft spot in his heart for Gentiles, you know? Of course he thinks they should be saved. We always knew he was a bit off. No, I mean, he's on the other side of the spectrum, right? In verse 3, Paul describes this truth 
as a mystery, one made known to him by revelation. Now, I talked last week about it, and I'll mention it here again, what a mystery is. He defines it actually for us. I defined it last week in my own words, but let's just look at what Paul says in verse 5. Just jump a few verses for a second. Look at verse 5. He describes there what the definition of a biblical mystery is. It's a truth not made known to the sons of men that has now been revealed through the apostles and the prophets. It's a truth, always was there, always was part of the plan. It's not plan B. It was always plan A. But God just didn't say anything about it, not clearly, until he was ready, and he used New Testament prophets. That's the definition of a biblical mystery. God holding back information about plans that he has for mankind, and he holds it back until the New Testament prophets, which means he holds it back until the appearing of the Son of God. These are mysteries that were intended to be revealed as part of New Testament theology. After the Son of God is revealed, after we know that the Messiah is Jesus, then the Father reveals these hidden truths that are associated with His Son and with the institution His Son establishes, the church. If you wanted to do a little side study on your own, and I'd encourage you on this, there are eight mysteries in the New Testament. And five of those eight mysteries... Five of them relate to the church specifically, and Paul reveals four of those. So there are eight total, five dealing with the church, four of which Paul revealed. So Paul gets half of the mysteries of the New Testament in his writings. Two of those four that Paul reveals are in this letter. We're hitting the first of them now. The first is, which I'll label it now, it's the mystery of the union of Jew and Gentile. The idea that the church was going to be a union of Jew and Gentile. That was a mystery. And let me explain to you why we call it a mystery. Not just because you didn't know it, but because it didn't have to be that way. Here again, we're in the church as Gentiles, so we just take it for granted, right? Well, it didn't have to be that way. God had other options. For example, he could have chosen to make the New Testament church very much like he made the nation of Israel prior to Christ's arrival. He could have saved Gentiles in the New Testament times, just as he saved Gentiles in the Old Testament times. Remember, we said last week, it's not as though there were never any Gentile converts in the Old Testament. They just were kind of few and far between. He could have kept doing that. It still would have sufficed to meet his promises to Abraham that he would save through his seed all nations. God could have accomplished that here and there as he used to. He could have left Gentiles outside the assembly. Just like God-fearing Gentiles were kept outside the walls of the temple back in that day. Watching the Jews as they enjoyed the New Testament life that God had promised to them in the Old. I mean, keep in mind, friends, there's nothing about that scenario that would violate anything God has said in terms of the, the promises to the fathers. And had God decided to operate this way, he'd have been no less faithful. He still would have been blessing all the nations. After all, no one even knew that the possibility existed for God to do anything different than that. It was a mystery. But God preferred to bring Jew and Gentile together into one body, and so he did that. That begs the question, why? Paul is working toward that answer, and so are we. So knowing that God desired to unite these two groups, that knowledge is critical for unity in the body itself. Both Jew and Gentile, right after the church began, entered into that body with prejudices concerning one another. They couldn't help but do so. Those prejudices were the result of sinful flesh reacting Absent spiritual understanding. These people, Jew and Gentile, who came to faith, came into the same body, brought their prejudices with them, and they maintained them because they lacked spiritual understanding. They didn't know God's heart. They didn't understand God's purpose. They operated in spiritual ignorance because spiritual ignorance always gives opportunity for the flesh to take over. Notice Paul emphasizes that he had already explained this to them 
briefly earlier. And this is a bit of an enigma in the letter. We're not sure what he means. He could have been referring to some earlier comments in this letter, back to that first point he made in chapter 2 that I described earlier. It could be that he was saying, like I just described briefly earlier, but it's also possible he's referring to an earlier letter, one we don't have anymore, that he might have written to them. But in either case, Paul says, in past, I only briefly mentioned this mystery, therefore now I'm going to explain it to you in some detail. Because it's important for you to know and appreciate this truth. Because understanding it, understanding the mystery, requires that you change your thinking and your behavior about each other. He's going to talk about the thinking here. He's going to talk about the behavior in chapter 4. And now he begins to explain the mystery, how their thinking should change. And he says in verse 6, To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, And fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. The Lord revealed, Paul says, that the Gentiles were going to be now fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of God's people. Jews had long held that position of privilege. They had long been promised many good things. If you go back through all the Old Testament studies, even just our study on Genesis, for example, you can see in there consistently God promising to Israel, I'll send you a deliverer. He's going to remove sin from you. He's going to pull you out of sin and into everlasting righteousness. I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you a kingdom. You're going to be the chief nation. You'll have peace, you'll have security, you'll have this abiding relationship with me. This is all being given to you through my promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't have to do anything to get this. It's a promise from me. It has no requirement from you. The Jews got all of those promises. They weren't even a people until God himself made them a people out of Abraham's barren wife. And because the Jewish people descended from Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, they were heirs to those promises. You see that? God promised Abraham, through your seed, through your line, I will give these things. So here's a Jew in the 20th century, or in Paul's day, the first century, who gets born into that family. Voila, you're born into these promises. Of course, we also know from other scripture that it was not merely those who were of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that received these things. It was for those who were by faith in these promises made children of God in the Spirit, they would receive what God was promising. So it was more than merely a physical heir. It speaks to a spiritual heir. And these family members of the nation of Israel had this inheritance. So when the Son of God, who was also a member of this family, born in the line of David, in the tribe of Judah, when he died, he is the promise keeper. He delivers his own inheritance to his own family, of whom are all the Jewish people who by faith are part of that family. That's what it means to be an heir. Well, now Paul is changing this up a little bit. He says, God desires for Gentiles to be fellow heirs with us in these promises. God intended this, that they would have a a chance to partake of the same promises that were given to our family members. How do strangers become fellow heirs? How can he do this? How can it even be possible? How did they obtain such an opportunity? How did you and I, who are not Jewish, suddenly find ourselves the beneficiaries of an inheritance that was specifically identified for a family of people of whom we are not part of by birth? Paul says at the end of verse 6, Oh, well, they got it through the gospel. The gospel. And, of course, he means here the call to repent and believe 
that Jesus Christ is Savior, that He is Messiah. As he says in John chapter 3, it's to be born again, to receive a new spirit by that faith. It's a message that resurrects souls and eventually will resurrect bodies. That's how you became part of the family. You were born again into a new line. It's like we wipe clean the slate of who your ancestry was under Gentile lines and we redraw it from Christ. And now you're an heir. Now you may think for a moment that he's saying that, well, for the Jew it's one way and for the Gentile it's another way. But that's not true, of course. Salvation has always been in this same way. And the promises of Messiah have always been the basis for salvation for both Jew and for Gentile. The difference is not that the message changed or that the method changed. The difference now is God is now prepared to bring repentance to the heart of Gentiles so that that message will make an impact to them. Where before, he was not working among the Gentiles in that way. Do you see where the change happened? Same message to the same ears, but now God is moving hearts in the Gentiles where before He wasn't. And the apostles themselves see this happen in their own experience when they go ministering in Acts 13. Notice what happens when the same message is preached to Gentiles as it was to Jews. Acts 13.44 The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And notice this, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel initially to the Jews who were hardened, they did not receive it, and they were blaspheming it. So the apostles said, okay, we had to do it for you first, that was the rule. Now we're going to go to the Gentiles. And by the way, if you read a little further, that fact starts a riot. But anyway, when the Gentiles hear the message, they rejoice at the same message leading to salvation. Notice, though, it's a salvation appointed by God, those who were appointed to eternal life. The point being that had this same moment occurred at an earlier time, had a bunch of Jewish zealots decided to walk outside the temple, step out into the court of the Gentiles, and start presenting them with messages of the word of God in the hope that they would become Jewish or that they would follow the living God as they did, In that day, they would have had very little, if any, impact. Because in that day, God was not yet ready to open the doors for Gentile conversion. I'm not saying it would have been zero, but I'm saying it would not have had the effect you see here. Now it's, you can see, moving in a different direction. While the Jews are rejecting the idea that Gentiles can be included, the Gentiles are readily receiving it as God appoints. Paul quotes from Isaiah in Acts 13.47 by saying, This actually was God's intention that Jews would be a light to the Gentiles, that they would bring salvation to the end of the earth. Not as a nation per se, but individually, the apostles are fulfilling this call. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 7 that he was the chosen minister of this gospel by the power of God. The word for minister there is the same word in Greek that we translate deacon. So he's saying, I had this office of service to God that requires that I go off and share this message. Not my idea, not my plan, but I had to do it. And then he says, I did it serving in the power that God gave me, which validated my calling. And he's like all apostles in that regard. He possessed supernatural gifts that he could use at times to display 
great power, raising people from the dead, as Paul did at one point, healing people, etc. And with that power, he could validate his calling. So Paul said, I had a commission of service. I united that with the power of God. We don't do anything in our own power. We have to use God's power. But by that same token, we don't accomplish anything if we don't set out to serve. So we have to go serve in God's power, and we get something done by God's appointment. And Paul says, that was my job. I went out to the Gentiles. I had the message. They were the target. And as hard as it is to believe, this was what God intended. And he says in verses 8 and 9, I was the very least of the saints, and certainly many in the church would have agreed with Paul's assessment. I mean, thinking back to his past in persecution. And that would mean if opportunities to serve God were based on merit, well, Paul would have been the least qualified person you could imagine to do this job. But then again, if that's what you're thinking, look in the mirror. How many of us have a whole lot of qualification to serve God? But he lets us. But his point is this. Paul's personal history was very important to the demonstration of God's purpose in his work. Paul was the last person you would expect to see encouraging Gentiles to join God's people. And his unlikely conversion story had to disarm those critics who would have said, well, there's something else behind this. Everyone knew Paul hated Gentiles, or so he used to. And therefore, his sudden affection for them could only be explained supernaturally. So Paul says in verse 9, he was brought, Paul was brought into this service to let the light of this plan, of this administration, this plan of the mystery, be known when in the past it had been hidden for generations. I can't imagine the immense pressure Paul must have felt when he first found out what his mission was. The mixed emotions over it. The thought of, that's not a group I want to help be saved. But more than that, how do I deal with my own people when they find out I have this mission? How do I convince anyone that it's really a mission from God, that I didn't just make this crazy idea up in my own head? Paul says, I had the responsibility to manage this idea, this mystery that God was now ready to show the world, that we want Gentiles in the church. Why did God choose to reveal the truth this way, do you think? Why wait until Jesus is appearing before he chose to unite these two groups of people? Why even have the church at all in that respect? Why have a group of Gentiles in a church? Well, Paul gives that answer in verse 10 and beyond. He says in verse 10, So, you see, he's giving a reason there. So, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. First Paul says this mystery was hidden for ages to be revealed by the apostles, primarily Paul, so that God's manifold wisdom would be made known. The word manifold, it's maybe not the best English translation. The word in Greek means multifaceted, diverse, as in made up of many different kinds. It's, I think, a play on words because it's really a good description of the church. We're like a multifaceted jewel. That's what manifold means here. Paul's talking about the intricacies of God's plan of salvation. The incredible detail, the unexpected twists and turns of how God shuts up all people in disobedience yet brings salvation to many. Have you ever experienced that feeling as you go through Scripture? And you start seeing, oh yeah, this refers to that. And when he did this thing in history, it was setting up this later thing in history. And then, oh, this detail, that ties all the way back to that promise that happened. My goodness, look at the weaving of this. This is better than any TV show, soap opera, novel. There's so much intricacy. And it's one thing to do all that in fiction writing. It's another thing to actually make history do all of that. 
to move people and circumstance, right? The unfathomable depths of his wisdom, such that he can bring all events in human history together in such a way that it meets all purposes, solves all problems, ties up all loose ends, makes everything exactly how it should be, and it all culminates, hear this, it all culminates in the church. The church isn't the last thing in history, but it all culminates in the church. The church is truly the pinnacle of all of this work. That's why Paul used that term multifaceted. He's speaking about how God is bringing everything together into the church. The church is where every detail of the Old and the New Testament comes together. The church is where the Spirit of God dwells. We're the only people in all of what we know to be history, past or future, in which God himself sets up residence in our bodies, where we are the temple and the temple isn't some physical structure. The church is where the Spirit of God dwells and where the law of God is written on our hearts. That's soon to be something Israel will know as well. But we have it first. It's where perfect obedience occurs in our spirit. It's the place where the Son of God is preached in His full revelation, in fulfillment of all past prophecies. What the fathers knew in parts and portions prior days, we have in fullness today. There is nothing higher than the church in God's plan. That's why the mystery waited to be revealed. That's why he wasn't talking about all of the details of the church before the church came along, because the Lord was waiting for the appearing of his son, who creates the church, so that then he could reveal the plan for such a thing. That's why, by the way, the church itself is a mystery. No one knew it was coming. In prior generations, the Lord alluded to it. If you go back and look through some of the prophets, you'll find them at times saying that the Lord would make his people jealous by a people who were not his people, or he would use pictures in Scripture, like Boaz and Ruth, Jewish man, Gentile bride, you know, you get the point. He starts to draw those things out, but only in hindsight do you make sense like that. Coming in, you never saw it. No one saw it. No one could understand those things until the mystery was revealed in the New Testament. And the New Testament church is God's grand display. It's his piece de resistance. It's his ultimate showing off of what he was capable of doing. Paul says in verse 11, that he did all these things in accordance with his eternal purpose carried out in Christ Jesus from the beginning of creation onward. You, know, you can go back to even as early as Genesis, and you can begin to see in chapters 2 and 3 even the emergence of his plan for the church, that through his seed he would bring a salvation for all. That plan existed, we're told, even before sin existed, even before the foundations of the earth. That's what Paul said in chapter 1. Even before the whole plan started, he had you and me in mind. That's why he says Jew and Gentile can have boldness and confidence in accessing the Father through Christ because after all, if God planned for all of us to be part of this thing from so long ago, then why be timid about it? Why doubt it? It ain't going to get no better than this on earth, not prior to the kingdom. So celebrate it. Live as children of the king, secure in your place in the family, determined to serve him, enjoying access to his wisdom and power, and unite with others who have the same. But you notice I skipped something. Did you notice at the end of verse 10, Paul says God was working this plan for another audience as well, an audience beyond you and me. Paul made mention of another group of observers. He says that God wanted to make known his multifaceted wisdom to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, who are these rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Well, at first you might think angels. But that doesn't really make sense in light of the context because angels, they don't need to be taught of God's wisdom or really even of his plan. They're not omniscient. 
But certainly they're sharing in the work of God. They're aware of the plan. They're working the plan because we're told elsewhere in Scripture that they are ministering spirits for the needs of the saints. They're part of the work of God for the sake of the church. These spirits were created by God specifically to ensure the plan takes place. So for them, God's wisdom, His multifaceted wisdom, it's self-evident. They're glorying in it. So what other heavenly rulers might need to be taught about the wisdom of God who don't appreciate it already? Well, I want you to consider another verse from this same letter that we'll get to in a few weeks. I'll read the verse. It's in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, in that verse, it's pretty apparent from the context Paul's talking about unholy spiritual forces, wicked things, darkness, he says. But in that same verse, you find all three of the same Greek words that we just saw earlier in chapter 3. The Greek word for rulers, the Greek word for authorities, the Greek word for heavenly places. All three of those Greek words are also in view here in chapter 6. So, there are demonic forces that inhabit the spiritual world, they are authorities, they are rulers, to the extent that the Lord has permitted them to operate in that way for a time. Remember, the enemy fell into sin because in his beauty and in his pride in serving in the heavenly tabernacle as the covering cherub at the mercy seat, he was so taken by his role and his privilege and his beauty that he began to think himself a rival to God for the throne. Somehow he imagined he could compete with God, and in fact he believes he can exceed God in power and in wisdom. That's what the deception of pride did for him. In Revelation 12, you would go read there, you'd learn that Satan recruited a third of the angelic realm to think that way about him as well and to follow him into rebellion. Somehow he convinced a third of them that he was more powerful than God, and they picked sides, they took Satan. They are the rulers, the authorities in heavenly places. They are not ultimate rulers. They do not have ultimate authority, but they possess some for a time. And they, friends, are the audience for God's amazing work in the church. And here's the message that I think God is trying to send to those rebellious angels through the mystery of his church. First, he shows them that his wisdom and power goes far beyond anything they could comprehend, much less match. That God could work for so long through so many people and nations over such a long period of time to accomplish this plan such that every detail would come together. Promises made long ago would still come to pass in time. People that were seemingly beyond reach would still be incorporated into the body of Christ. And nothing the enemy could do changed any of it. That even when he thought he was destroying the seed promise when he came against Abel, or when he tried to destroy Isaac, on the top of the mountain? No. Nope. Judah with Tamar? No, nope. that worked to God's advantage. David with Bathsheba? No, that worked to God's advantage. Killing the Christ child through Herod? No, nope. that just fulfilled prophecy. And even when he put Christ on the cross, he was hammering nails into his own coffin. You see, every time he thinks he's winning, he's working to support the needs of God because God's wisdom and power far exceed his. The mystery of the church, it's God's triumphant statement to spiritual darkness, game over. And it's multifaceted because he's proving that God has the power to incorporate anyone, anywhere, of any type into his plan of salvation. Ah, but you notice, Jews are included, 
Gentiles are included, but fallen angels? No, they're not included. Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.16, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. They are seeing in the church the fact that God could have saved them, but he is not. They are seeing that he has the power and the willingness to bring together a multifaceted plan of salvation, but not with them included. These fallen angels see the church as proof they have been passed over in God's mercy, and so they hate God all the more for it. Which is why Paul ends this passage the way he does in verse 13. He says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. The demons take out their hatred for God on God's people, including Paul. And so Paul says, those tribulations, well, they're just simply proof the glory of God has been brought to you. And there's some bad guys in the background that don't like to hear that. And they're going to persecute me. To quote Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you included us in a plan that is so majestic and so all-encompassing and so rooted in your love. And, Father, yet it didn't have to be that way. You had other options. So, Father, we thank you. We praise your name. We recognize our own unworthiness, and yet we are so thankful, Father, that we've been made worthy by the blood of Christ. We thank you for the wisdom you gave Paul to write in such a great way that we could understand these things, such a clear way. And we ask, Father, that what we've learned today as we consider the importance of this thing we call church, of the body of Christ, and in particular our own body here, this local body, how important this is to you. How important it is to you, Father, that we would serve the purpose of being a light. How important it must be to you, Father, that we would stand as testimony to spiritual darkness of how vast your love is. And yet, Father, your patience has limits. And you had no patience for the spiritual rebellion that took place. And so they have, they have come to understand their future. As we have come to understand ours. And though we did not deserve better, you brought it to us nonetheless by your grace. Thank you, Father, for that gift. Let us go out, as we've heard from many this morning already, let us go out with a sense of, of commitment and mission and urgency, not content to let you do the work without us, but intent on serving you in your power. That's our prayer, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.